Welcome to part two of the Gospel According to Craig Tuffin, a remarkable photographer with an even more amazing journey. In Craig's words, he is a photographer who uses really old processes from the beginning of photography to make photographs as objects to represent ideas that he has. If you haven't listened to part one, I would encourage you to do so. Here it is, part two of the Gospel According to Craig Tuffin. What does imperfection mean to you? Imperfection is something that we need to embrace. It's inescapable. It's a core part of what I do. As much of it as I've tried to remove it from the process, it's actually those serendipitous events that add so much more to it. And I liken it to a metaphor in our own lives is that, you know, we, we always seem to say, you know, when my life or my career or my sport or whatever it is I'm doing at the time, when I reach this level, I'll be satisfied and I'll be happy. But that's a lie. It never is. Somehow we have to be able to embrace the circumstances that we've got now, as difficult as they may be, and say, this is life and it is good. Because you've got to admit, we've got a pretty good over here. So I like to use these physical image objects as, as really core metaphors for what I want to see in my own life. Now, if other people see that, that's wonderful. But this is a beautiful thing about photography or art or paint, what, what it, whatever the art form seems to be, is that what people see, what you see of one of these things is really dependent on your history, the circumstances that you've lived through. I might see something completely different. And you know what? That's okay. I remember right early in my career, I had a show in this gallery and they'd do tours of these shows. You know, no one knew who I was. So I just sat in on one of the tours and, you know, the, the person at the gallery was, had all these people around and they're talking about my work. And I was, I was listening in on, on some people that were talking about the work and he's, oh, he's doing this and he's this and you know, they had this and, and, you know, look at me and what do you think? Oh, yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> they were nowhere near the reason why I did it. Or the point or the, or the narrative of the work. I mean, quite often people don't read the artist statement attributed to the entire body of work. And that's okay because a lot of the time it's art speak, to be completely honest. But I realized at that moment what I was trying to say might not necessarily be seen or heard, rather, by the people that are there, the audience. But they're hearing a message that they need to and they want to. And you know what? That's fine. That's fine by me. Does the ego in you want to correct them and say, hey, that's me? At the beginning, yeah. <laughs> what stopped you? I'm trying to remove the ego as much as I possibly can. I want it to be about the work. I know that sounds really melodramatic and pious, but it's, it's not at all. I, I really just want the work to have its own narrative apart from me. So if I go, oh, that was me, you know, this is what I mean, you're completely wrong, straight away, you know, I'm, I'm taking their legs away from them. So let's talk about ego for a moment. Oh, I want you to feel free to, to have an ego because I think it's, uh, whether it's the word is warranted, but you had an opportunity to go over to New York and to represent your body of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I did. I, I had a wonderful opportunity to to show in New York in the Howard Greenberg Gallery, which is just a phenomenal gallery. Some of the greatest photographers in the world um, have had their work there and constantly on show. 
But I had an opportunity to show there with some of my heroes. And Sally, that um, I was motivated by, was in the same show. And that was, it is a, it is a, proud moment to have your work on the wall. But not only that, it was one of my daguerreotypes that was the opening piece as people came through into that gallery to see the rest of the work. It was one of my pieces there. Sure, you're okay to have an ego. I just just try to keep that in check because then it becomes all about me. And you see that with artists a lot, let's be honest. Um, And not just artists, but it becomes all about them rather than what their work is representative of. So I do try to keep that in check. Um, I used to, when someone would ask me what I do, I used to go and ramble for ages, total jargon, and you'd see their eyes slowly glaze over. I realized that, you know, that's pointless. Try to keep it short and just say, you know, I'm a a photographer and I, I do this type of work. I use old processes. I'm not trying to make them look old. I'm using old processes to represent the contemporary narrative. But it was. It was a wonderful moment. And yes, it is okay to have an ego, but I think it's important to keep it in check as well. And how did it feel when you and your wife went over to New York and you're standing in front of your artwork in a very prestigious gallery? Oh, it's fantastic. It was great. And it was great just mixing. You know, we had an opening night dinner where Howard Greenberg, the owner of the gallery, took all of the um, artists out for a meal. It was just great being able to share. And it's amazing, you know, when you're first starting something, you have this perception of people that are really successful at something as being faultless or they develop work differently or, you know, even with these athletes. But when you get to mix with them, you realize that they're just normal people and they've had to go through a lot of the same experiences that you've had. So it's really, um, it's grounding to be able to get to a point where you feel like, yeah, I've reached that really important goal for myself. But you know what? They're all just the same as me. It was the drive that gets you there. And yeah, it's sort of surmounting those insurmountable, or what you think at the time, circumstances. What have you learned about failure? It's a key part of the work. I, I would go so far to say if you're not failing, you're not working hard enough because it's really important not to be safe. If you're just working to be safe all the time, then your work becomes insipid. It's just like everything else you've done. You need to be able to push yourself to a point where, you know, that didn't work. And maybe you leave it out and you leave it behind and you don't pursue it anymore, but maybe it leads on to something else that's quite phenomenal. So I think failure is a really key part of anything we do. We must push ourselves to the point where we make mistakes so that we have to fix those things or we find another way to represent the thing we want to say. And what have you learned about yourself? Oh, I fail a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think um, some of the key things about myself is I know that I'm intense, that I do tend to possibly work too hard and with too much energy at times and s- sacrifice a lot. And thankfully, over the last 18 years of using this, these processes that I've learned some valuable lessons along the way. I, I can't change who I am. I can't sh- change that intensity, but I can certainly meter it, you know, and I can make sure that I'm giving time to those other really important things in my life, like my wife and my children. And, you know, that quality time is really, really important. So I've, I've learned to be okay with who I am. But make sure that I tether that person that I can be. Tethering what person? 
that super intense person that wants to work right through the night. I don't know how many all-nighters I would do um, because particularly it's really quiet. I can work in the dark room without interruption right through the night. I can't physically do that anymore as I get older, but being able to step back from that a little bit, have a reasonable work ethic. I spoke to somebody who was a footballer. He said one of the words he doesn't hear enough anymore is the word obsession. Mm Mm-hmm. While you see it as a fault, it's almost a necessity for achieving greatness. Absolutely. Do you believe that you had to be obsessive and in what way? Definitely. I definitely agree with you have to be obsessive. You have to be intense. But say, for example, it was sport that I was doing and I was training that obsessively and that intensely like I was doing all these all-nighters, there's a huge risk of injury. So- you know, quite often, you know, with these professional sporting teams, they've got trainers and stuff that keep these guys in check to make sure that that doesn't happen. I think it's vital. I would go so far to say that talent is a distraction, that being tenacious is probably one of the most valuable things, no matter what it is that you're doing, whether it's photography or whether it's sport or whatever. You just have to be prepared to be one of the hardest workers that's there, but you've got to work smart. Can you talk to me about vision? Vision to me, and this has come from years of really trying to, to think about what I want to say and how I say it, to me is an idea. The most important thing for me in the work that I do is the idea. The photography actually comes second. The idea is so important that if the photography is left without that idea, people really don't want to pay attention to it, particularly in a world where it's a three-second swipe right, you know, this social media-driven, this visual language that we've got now. So for me, I spend a lot of time on the idea. I try to finesse it. I try to make sure that what I'm trying to say, that key ingredient for that narrative, is really, really valuable. And it's said in a way that I can attract the greatest audience into trying to understand what it means. And like I said before, it still means slightly different things to everyone that sees it according to their history and the circumstances that they've experienced. But for me, that idea is so important. I have a notebook. I I like to keep things analog. So I still write down ideas in notebooks all the time. And I'll come back to those ideas at times and I'll go, yeah, okay, I forgot about that one. That was okay. Let's develop that a little bit more. Or I'll come back to an idea. I go, hey, what was I thinking? <laughs> That's the worst idea I've ever seen before. So let's just let's just rip that page out entirely. So no one knows that I had that idea. So for me, vision is about how do I first of all develop that idea, but then after I've started that work, allow that idea to develop even more. Because if I, if I just stayed to that original concept, I'm not allowing then the, the experiences that I have and the education that comes through creating that body of work to then inform the next piece. It can't develop the way it needs to go. So I think having vision is saying, okay, here is my, here's the, the key thing that I want to say, but how am I going to say it? And that for me, that means what visual language am I, am I going to use? What tools am I going to use to say that? And then along the way, does it change slightly into something else? And am I allowing myself the room for that to happen? And when all of those things, when all those planets align, 
something special happens and then I'm prepared then to release that work. But I've done work for years and I've shelved it. So I spent years on stuff and I've gone, no. I just don't think that's saying what I want it to say. So that just goes in the archive. The work you do and the way you do it and the processes you have to follow, Mm -hmm. is it liberating or a curse to realise and to know you have not as much control as you think you do? Can I just say yes? (laughs) Because (laughs) it's both. It's extremely liberating. It's phenomenal when, you know, because you don't really know until you develop these things. You've got a really good idea with experience, but you're not really sure and until it, it happens, you know, until you develop it, what's going to be evident on the play. So that's, that's, that's wonderful. And that, again, is that word serendipity at play. The curse part of it is the spending all day or a week planning and then you've got this moment for a shoot and everything goes wrong, you know, and that's painful. And, and Carly will be, she's there for those ones too. She's not just there for the successes. Where it's just, oh my goodness, I just, you know, I've wasted a day, you know, I just, but there's always something to learn. I'm a mad journal keeper with my work. So I can go back right to the beginning and I can look up a date. I can look up a piece that I made and I can look at the lighting that I did, exposure, lens, everything that I did so that I can then return to that point of failure and go, you know what? That's why it happened. I'm, I'm, I'm more informed now. I can then move on from that. And that's also been good because, you know, by writing, by doing these workshops, I can then write a, a, a manual that's not only got stuff from history, you know, the stuff that I've read where I go, okay, well, I put that in a practice. Yeah, that's how, oh, yeah, that's true. I keep notes of that. There's also particular stuff that I've investigated. This, I can put this down now. So when I'm teaching students, I can go, look, you now have a, a, a lifetime of, of emailing me where you've got something going on. The first thing I'm going to say to you is, have you read your manual? Have you gone to page 38? And if you haven't, do that first and then we'll talk about what's actually happening because this is what's happening. So it's, it's been able to help others as well as myself. So liberating and a curse. We're all wrapped into one. How beautiful is that? Very beautiful. You used a word that not many people use, serendipity or serendipitous. Can you explain what that means and what it means to you? These unexpected but really poignant events that happen. I'll give a practical example. Making daguerreotypes on these silver plates, which is essentially a monochromatic process, which means it's just black and white. But these things are kind of like mirrors too. So it's just information on there. There's no color. The first time I overexposed and I fumed them with these different chemicals, I fumed with one chemical a little bit more than I usually do and I overexposed it. And then I had my mercury uh, vapors that I develop it with. They were too hot. So I've, I've got this plate that I've exposed. I put it over my mercury pot. It's, it's literally a stainless steel pot with these mercury in the bottom that's heated up to particular temperatures and it develops the image. And all of a sudden, when I, when I fix or do the final stage to this plate, I have a blue sky. So here's the first photographic process that's monochromatic. It's black and white, but now I've got a blue sky. So this, in the, in, you know, the 19th century, their white cravats might have turned out blue. Well, they would repolish those plates and use them again. They were considered to be failures. So you know, men that were coming into the studios were always told, don't wear white vests and white cravats if you can avoid it. But that mistake then became 
something quite phenomenal. You know, people see that work now and they go, what's with this blue sky? Well, you know, that's an error. <laughs> but, mm. you know, that, that came because of this accumulation of circumstances just at that, that particular time. In a world where media, art, communication is so fleeting, so quick, social media is there and gone, mm-hmm. how important is the type of work not just your work, but the type of work, that old technology, mm. how important is that now? I think it gives, well, with 300 million images going up every day on the internet and primarily through social media, it is really easy to get apathetic about how easily your image making is lost. I was doing this, this trip with this friend of mine from the States uh, we'd run our masterclasses down in Victoria and we're doing this trip up and we're having a beer one afternoon at a pub. So it was a road trip all the way back up to the Gold Coast over a space of about a week, week and a half. It was great. He asked me, you know, how are you doing? What, what's been happening with you? And I, I had some acquisitions by the National Gallery at the time and I had this new body of work and I was all excited because, you know, this guy, he's phenomenal. You know, he's one of my mentors. And then he, he said, oh, you, do you want some advice? And he assisted like Avedon and, you know, all these really important people. Uh, these amazing photographers in the States. And I said, yes, please give me some advice. And he goes, all right, nobody cares. <laughs> and I said, what? He goes, nobody cares about you, Craig. Nobody cares about me. And I, was, I, 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 I sort of stepped back a little bit and I thought, oh, gee, that's, that's, quite, that's, that's an interesting thing to say. I need to think about it. But w- what he actually means too is that, you know, if we're only making work because we're worried about people caring about it, because how many likes we get on Instagram or how much attention people on Facebook pay to it, then we're making work according to these blinkers we have on now, this particular time and place. Um, And there's a danger in that. If we really want to make work that's important, then we need to make work that's important to us. And these these tangible objects that I make that, that have weight and scale these unchangeable image objects that will stand the test of time are not only, you know, they're not something to be viewed on a phone. You know, these are things to be experienced in person and they will live a lot longer than opinion. <laughs> Certainly our opinions now. So I like to use those as just, they're, they're just as important uh, to represent that narrative, that craft that's that's there to to create the these objects is is really important to me because it um it gives them some tangibility it gives them some i suppose space beyond what is standard sort of instagramming image making now where you know everyone's using their phones not to say that great work can't be made with phones i know some great new york fashion photographers that have done whole shoots on their phones that's fine but it just depends on what you want to say. What's your idea and how are you going to say it? Is there anything you think I've missed? I think a really important thing, I think I said it before though, is that we, we have to be attuned to failure. I think we have to be okay that we're going to experience it and remember when we're experiencing it that it's temporal. We can either take that moment to leave it all behind or we can use it for something that could be quite incredible. We have a choice. 
are we going to let it end something or start something better? You did tell me that when people asked you what you do mm. and your answer, that would glaze over. So I'm <laughs> going to challenge you now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. On finishing, uh, what do you do? Well, I'm a photographer and I use really old processes from the beginning of photography to make image objects. I make photographs as objects and to represent these ideas that I have. It's as simple as that. Thank you for joining me on the Future Champions podcast in this episode of The Gospel According to Craig Tuffin. I've had a wonderful time speaking to Craig and feel so honoured to be able to share a part of his story. For me personally, it has changed my view on failure. I don't fear it as much as I used to. Craig, thank you for giving me your time and sharing your journey. You can listen to the Future Champions podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, or visit our website on www.intentsport.com. My name is Stuart Taylor. Thank you and stay safe.